We are in the second week of a, a short series called Tension. Um, and, and the idea behind this series is there are things that you need to hold in tension in order to be a wise believer, to, to live wisely, to live biblically. There are certain things you're going to have to hold in tension. Uh, the primary one that we talked about last week and will serve as sort of a, a grid over the whole series is this idea that we should always be living in tension with grace and truth, that grace and truth are utterly important. We can never uh, give in one more towards the other. We need to be grace and truth. And today we're going to be applying that grid or that subject to the issue of human sexuality. And so today, let's look at John chapter 7, verses 53 through 8, 11, and it will be found uh, on the screen above you. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such wom uh, a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. So as a pastor, here are some of the things that I have in my mind, in my heart, whenever I'm addressing uh, a subject like this. First, I realize that this is not just a theological or a philosophical exercise for some of you, as this is deeply personal. Next, most, if not all of us, have personally experienced sexual brokenness and fallenness through our own actions or through the actions of other people or both. Many in, in this congregation and any congregation uh, have experienced abuse. Many have or are struggling uh, with pornography. Most have close friends or family who identify as gay, non-binary, or trans. In every congregation, there are Christians wrestling with those issues personally. If this is a personal issue for you or for a loved one, you may be tempted to think that you're alone in the church or alone in this church, but you would be wrong to do so. Uh, research shows that around 14% of women and 7% of men experience same-sex attraction at some level, but uh, less than 2% of men and less than 1% of women are exclusively same-sex attraction. And so it would be wrong to assume that this is strictly an us-them uh, situation, or this is only an issue for folks outside of the church. It exists in the church as well. And the same would be true for people struggling with gender and identity issues, especially among younger students, obviously. So where do we begin in a discussion like this? Where do we start? I think the most important thing, and the first point is this, and it's a question. Who is our authority? Who or what is our authority? 
The primary or fundamental issue at hand is authority. Who has the right to determine what is true for anyone? Sam Alberry, I'm going to mention him several times this week. He's become uh, a favorite pastor, theologian, and apologist of mine. Um, he's written a lot of books. He's a very thoughtful man, an apologist. And he wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? I would highly recommend it to you. It's, it's very well written. He also personally is exclusively same-sex attracted. But he writes this. Being a Christian means that I believe what I believe about sexuality because I believe what I believe about Jesus. I follow him, which means I follow what he teaches about this part of life. And so if Jesus is God in the flesh and the one through whom all things were created and he rose from the dead, then brothers and sisters, he has the right, he has the objective right to tell us what is true in every area of life, including human sexuality. If Jesus's bones are still somehow found in the ground of Jerusalem, then there is no ultimate truth. And you really should be free to define what your individual reality is. <laughs> but as Christians, obviously we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He is the one through, him, through whom all things were created and by th whom all things are created. And so as Christians, we look to Jesus and therefore we look to scripture as our authority. Now tonight, guys, I wanna come into you guys night because if we can't trust the Bible or if you have in your mind somehow, I don't know if I can actually trust the Bible, then why would you follow Jesus at all? And why would you listen to what he has to say about this issue or any other issue for that matter? So if, if you're curious at all, or if you're wrestling with this issue at all, I would plead with you to come tonight and hear why it's very reasonable to look to the Holy Scriptures as our authority. Please come and there'll be 50 pounds of barbecue. As modern Americans though, as really anybody in the West, meaning like Western Europe and United States and Canada and so forth, there is an inherent pressure to have culture as our own or our own individual feelings serve as our primary authority. And the truth is even those of us who are believers that would say that scripture is our final authority, in reality, what I think we all wrestle with is this, it is very hard to not let culture be the thing that is driving you or your own individual feelings. And so this has led many churches and Christians to either fully affirm on the one hand everything or fully judge on the other hand, because there are two slippery slopes in our culture, by the way, it's not just one. One, we are used to talking about a slippery slope towards relativism, but there is also a slippery slope towards judgmentalism, which I think is plaguing the church. So what does Jesus say? What does he actually say? And I wish we had more time to delve into all the texts and all the issues, and we don't, but broadly or briefly. In Matthew 19, Jesus was tested by some Pharisees, some of his enemies, right, the, the, pro, the, the antagonist of the story. And they're questioning him on the issue of divorce, asking him about their practice of allowing a man to divorce a woman for just about any reason at all. Not a woman, 
Uh, she could not divorce her husband for almost any reason, but a man could divorce his wife and under their, their system for almost any reason, which is ironic because they were theologically very conservative. These were people who were taking the Old Testament very seriously. These were the people who were trying to get the, the law of Moses back uh, and the people of God following the details of the law of Moses. And yet, in their hypocrisy, they were saying a man can divorce a woman for almost any reason at all. And this is what Jesus had to say to them. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer one but two, or excuse me, but one, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Got that backwards. That's important. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, you know, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? And he said to them, it was because of your hard hearts. It's not God's will. It's because of your fallen, evil hearts. Now, Jesus is addressing, of course, the issue of divorce here. But in doing so, he's really also giving us a foundation for what gender is and what uh, human sexuality is and what marriage is. Jesus referred to the first two chapters of Genesis and he affirms that humanity is created male and female and that marriage is between one man and one woman. So Sam Al Albury, again, uh, says this, the teaching of Genesis, reinforced and expanded by Jesus in his own ministry, is that sex is a good gift. And I want to pause here for just a second in this quote to say there was a failure for a couple decades in the church in so emphasizing purity, some people call it purity culture, that we failed to teach people, especially young people, that God has given us the gift of sex and it is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing. It is a wonderful thing. And, and, and instead of this evil thing that you should avoid, 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 and then, okay, celebrate. You know what I mean? And, and yes, you should avoid until marriage. But instead, what you should recognize is this is a good gift created by God. It is to be enjoyed only in the, in the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. And yet, it is good. And we want to emphasize that God's creation is good. So he says, it is a good gift that God has given exclusively for marriage and that in order for marriage to fulfill the purpose for which God instituted it, it must be between one man and one woman. Jesus characterizes all sexual activity outside of marriage as being sinful or outside of God's will. Then, let me quote, in Mark 7, Jesus says this powerfully. Um, Jesus is addressing the Pharisees again because the Pharisees, and this is true of all self-righteousness and all religion in a way, they're always wanting to define what is defiled as that which is outside of you, not what is inside of you. It's all about don't touch this, don't play this game, don't go here, don't drink this, instead of the issue of the heart. And if you notice that Jesus is always far more concerned about our hearts than he is about outward things. You with me? 
It's the heart. It's the heart. It's the heart. In Matthew, Mark, excuse me, Mark 7, he says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, uh, for, from within, out of the heart of man, and we can say woman as well, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. <laughs> All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In a way, what they show is that the heart is defiled, right? It exposes the heart, these things. And would you please notice that Jesus' list of defiling things are not only sexual. As we read them, these are defiling things. He starts with evil thoughts. Yeah. Ever had an evil thought? <laughs> ever thought something mean about somebody? Ever, ever thought something, you know, okay, maybe. Uh, but what we have a, a typical way of reading this passage is like, here is what defiles a person. Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, right? It's like, Jesus does not mean to overemphasize this over others and then back to theft, murder. Okay, we'd be like, murder. <laughs> A great theologian taught me this. Um, adultery, okay. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality. But you get what I'm saying is, as we're reading these things, we tend to say, sexuality or sexual immorality, but in reality, it's in a list of things that God considers to defile us, and it includes far more than just sexual sin, but it includes sexual sin. And sexual immorality is a broad term. It's, it's, a, it's a Greek term, and it's, the word is porneia, and it's an umbrella term for all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And so if you think about that, that's pretty challenging. That is a boundary that is extremely challenging. This is a challenge, a, a very challenging truth for teenagers who want to follow Jesus. Students, uh, for you to follow Jesus and to, and to live into this is to say, God has given this great gift and yet I'm gonna cling to what is true and I'm gonna walk with him and as hard and challenging it is, I'm gonna wait until God provides a spouse for me. And people will look at you as if you're ridiculous if you do that. <laughs> I actually can remember when I was in high school, like I, I remember when I was not a believer and I had all kinds of plans uh, to implement uh, for my desires. And then God had to mess up those plans because I became a Christian. Then I became aware of Jesus's will for my life regarding these. And I began to submit my heart, my life to that will. It was not easy. And it was, it was totally out of the blue for me as a new follower of Jesus. And yet I began to walk in that. And I remember my peers thinking I was ridiculous to do that, even though it was the heart of the Bible Belt. And so if you're going to follow Jesus as a teenager in this regard, it's challenging. This is a challenging truth for single college students and single adults. And the older you get, you know, starting in high school, of course, you might get a break for uh, being faithful to the biblical sex ethic. But the older you get, the more strange it will be. And people look at you strangely as you, as you follow him in this area of your life. There's pressure. There's influence. Why wouldn't you just give in to your desires? It is challenging. This can be challenging even within uh, marriage when it's difficult. 
If you are married and you're not experiencing emotional intimacy or sexual intimacy, and, and it, it could be very frustrating and very challenging and very tempting. And of course, this is extremely challenging for Christians who are exclusively same-sex attracted, as this will mean a life committed to celibacy and singleness unless God changes those desires. And from my experience and my observation and my conversations and my personal relationship with people for whom this is true, um, at, there are some whose desires change, but most often those desires don't change. Sometimes God heals people from cancer. I've literally seen it. I mean, I mean, I didn't see it, the healing, but I experienced someone having cancer and then not having cancer, but it doesn't always happen. In fact, it's relatively rare. And sometimes God changes people's desires who are exclusively same-sex attracted, but often that doesn't change. And so it is a profoundly challenging thing. Sam Albury mentions this in his books. Ever since I have been open about my own experience of, of same-sex attraction, a number of Christians have said something like this, the gospel must be harder for you than it is for me, as though I have more to give up than they do. And I want you to listen to what he says next because it's very powerful. But the fact is the gospel demands everything of all of us. The gospel demands everything of all of us. Now, if Sam were my personal friend and he had said that to me, I'd wanna say, yeah, but Sam, your challenge is challenging. Let's admit it. This is a unique challenge that you're up against. But ultimately he's right. Jesus calls all of us, no matter what your station in life, whether you're in elementary school, whether you're in high school, whether you're in junior high, whether you're in college, whether you're single, whether you're same-sex attracted, whether you're same, exclusively same-sex attracted, whether you're heterosexual, what doesn't matter who you are. God says, take up your cross and follow me. This is what Jesus has said to all of us. The gospel can be costly. We're called to die to ourselves. The next thing I want us to see is grace and truth. In our passage today, in John 7, we find the Pharisees, again, bringing a woman caught in adultery in a public place to what? Stone her to death. And they bring her to Jesus and put him to the test. What do you say? Do you, do, do you agree to, uh, with us that, that, that according to the law of Moses, we should be able to execute this woman? Now, I don't know if you thought of this, but it takes two to tango in adultery, doesn't it? And to be caught in adultery means there had to have been some other party. There, there most likely was another man who was caught in adultery, but only the woman is being dragged out into the public square to be stoned to death. And in an economy of words, Jesus simply says, famously, you probably know this passage even if you don't go to church, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And the crowd who had gathered began to disperse, starting with the older ones, until Jesus was left alone with her. Now, Jesus moves this crowd of self-righteous rock throwers to drop their stones of judgment. And he does so by showing them that they too have sinned. So how on earth can they cast stones? And it's interesting that the older ones leave first, isn't it? It's the older people, the people who probably have had more opportunity to sin than the younger and maybe have more wisdom. And they drop these stones of self-righteousness and judgment. 
and they walk away. And Jesus's interaction with her and with this crowd is very interesting, actually, if you think about it. Like, I believe that Jesus literally created the universe. That's what the Bible says, the heavens and the earth. And, you know, we're, we're, lear we're learning a couple things about the universe these days, and it's actually very small. It's minuscule. It's so tiny and short. And... No, it's, it's mind-boggling in its expanse and its largest, largest. It's incredible. So the guy who creates all that, they, they're, this crowd is yelling, and they're about to kill a woman, and they bring her out, and they, they're yelling at him, what do you think, Jesus, you know, and it's weird, right? He bends down and he starts drawing in the ground and it sounds like he's mumbling to himself. They don't even know what he's saying, really. And psychologists would say he's a non-anxious presence, right? They're yelling, they're screaming, they're, they're bringing judgment. He just kind of does this and says, stands up and says, if any of you don't have sin, go ahead, kill her. <laughs> and they walk away. And then Jesus beautifully has this interaction with this woman. And he says, he says to her, woman, where are they? Has nobody, has nobody condemned you? And she said, no one. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And so in this passage, we see Jesus extending saving grace and liberating truth, grace and truth, beautifully. Grace, I don't condemn you, and I believe this is a saving grace. We all stand condemned before God, and yet he says, I don't condemn you. She calls him Lord. She's looking to him in faith, I believe. He says, I don't condemn you, but neither does he say, and by the way, no big deal on the adultery thing, you know? You just keep doing you, man. You just keep doing whatever you want to do, right? No, he says, go and sin no more. Now, please hear me. Our theology and our belief is not that we're sinless people and that as followers of Jesus, we can live in such a way that we don't sin. That's not the case. However, what Jesus is, not, is doing is he's establishing, walk in the truth. Seek me. It's not relative. Walk this, walk in this. Grace, I don't condemn you. Truth, go and sin no more. The next thing that I want us to see, and that's very important as we talk about this as believers, is lust, the issue of lust, is the great leveler of humanity. The great unifier, the great leveler. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent or a man has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus is referencing the seventh commandment about adultery and then he says that this commandment is not only applied to our outward actions, adultery, but the inward disposition of our heart. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, it's always about the heart for Jesus. And he says, if you have ever had lust towards someone that isn't your husband or your wife, then you are guilty of adultery. 
at a heart level. So do you know what that means? <laughs> Everyone in this room that's above the age of about 13 is guilty of adultery. And I may be being too generous there. Everyone in this room above about middle school age is, is guilty of adulterous lust. And so on the one hand, this should move us towards great humility towards all strugglers because we are all guilty of adulterous lust and maybe much more, right? And maybe much more. And so we should be humble towards others. Let me go off script for just a second. <laughs> and this isn't to shame anyone, but one of the, the ways that we, which we have been accused of behaving in the church, and I think we often do behave in the church, is to assign extra guilt towards some types of sexual sin. But meanwhile, as long as, as we are only committing heterosexual sin, like addiction to pornography or an affair or lustful heart or all kinds of things, somehow we're more righteous than those sinners. Would you please see before a holy God that you, if you are given over to your own lust and have not repented of that and are addicted or totally given over to pornography without any, any sense of like, I'm turning from this, there are serious warnings Jesus has here. Especially, hear me, if you are humbled before God with your condition, no matter how intense or dark it may be, if you are humbled towards him and repentant towards him, there is nothing but grace and forgiveness and, and new life for you to walk in. But if you have a heart of judge, a judgmental spirit and meanwhile are caught up in those kind of things and are judging other people, Jesus would have a stern, warm warning of, of warning towards you. Be careful as you judge other people and have given your heart over to so much. Are you with me? And this isn't to shame any of us. Look, the gospel is true for anyone. There is freedom for all of us, no matter what sexual sin that we have committed or, or that what we're in bondage to. But this heart of judgment is the problem. And therefore, if we are all guilty of adulterous lust, how humble should we be towards all those who are broken and lost and caught in some sin? We should be humble, strugglers, humble towards others. On the other hand, on the other hand, we are being called as followers to submit our lusts, our fallen desires and feelings and attractions to Christ as a, our Lord and say, Lord, help me walk in your way in your light. Help me to walk in your way. Humble towards God and, or humble towards others and repentant to God. Now, let's talk about what being judgmental is and what it is not. Uh, being judgmental is when you view someone else as a greater sinner than you are a sinner, right? When you say, thank God I'm not a sinner like that person. That is being judgmental and God is, would sternly warn you of that. It is not being judgmental though to believe that there is a truth regarding human sexuality or to seek the truth always with great humility, but to say that there is a truth and to try to walk in that truth is not being judgmental or even hypocritical if you're not able to walk in it perfectly. It's not judgmental or hypocritical to say there is a truth and I want to walk in that truth even though I do it imperfectly. The next thing I want us to see is the grace of friendship. 
The Bible says that Christians are united as one body and they cannot exist without one another just as the body is not alive without lungs and a heart, right? We exist as a, as a body that depends on one another. You can't exist independent of the body because it doesn't work without all the parts of the body. And so the church is a community where we can be vulnerable about our struggles and yet accept it. And you might say, well, I've been in a lot of churches and that's not my experience. And if that's true, I feel you. But what I want to point us to is not, not what is wrong about the church, but what should be real about the church and what this church is being called to right this very second by the Holy Spirit. This is the way the church should operate. This is the way I often have experienced this church, in all honesty. People being vulnerable, people being honest about their struggles, and, and then not being shamed for it, but actually being encouraged by that. And then it frees. It's like this unbelievable freedom. Have you been in a group of people where one person, just one person is willing to say, here is the truth about me. Here is my journey. Here's the way I have sinned against the holy God. Here's the way I've received grace. And have you seen the impact? And then all of a sudden it is yes and amen. And people are sharing their story and being vulnerable. It just takes one person to open up. One of my favorite authors is a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, she has a PhD from Cambridge. She's from the United Kingdom. She wrote a great book called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. I highly recommend it to you. She grew up in the church. She grew up herself believing the gospel from a very early age. And she also grew up having same-sex attraction at the earliest of age and continues to to this day. Although she is not exclusively same-sex attracted, she's now married and has three kids. However, because she grew up in the church and because she grew up struggling with this issue, issue, she never shared this part of her life with hardly anyone well into adulthood. She eventually shared uh, with her husband and a few other friends, but then she wrote a book where she addressed uh, all kinds of issues, including human sexuality, and she was about to tell her story in this book, and she thought, there's some people I have to catch up to speed. And she said this, one of the enemy's tactics is to convince you, all of us, that your temptation is the one thing you can never share with your friends or with other Christians. Your temptation, not everybody else's. You understand if everyone else, everyone else should be able to do that, but yours is the one thing you should never talk about. And you can understand why this issue would be so difficult to talk about. And, and she said, this is one of the enemy's greatest tactics. And I believe that to be true. Your issue is not the one thing you can't tell your, your fellow friends and, and especially Christians. I'll tell you this. You shouldn't tell everyone all your stuff. You should not. But you should live in community in such a way where there are people that have, have, you have grown to know and trust and have earned your trust. And, and that should happen in the church and you should be free to share your story. Why are we so prone to believe this lie, do you think? My sin is the one sin I can't talk about. And, and what are the implications of that? What happens when we live that way, when we keep it all to ourselves and never share that I am a fellow struggler? What happens? Now, I wish we had a group for both men and women, but we currently have a group for men 
that is really focused on working through sexual wholeness. And it is a group of men that are being very honest and real and vulnerable with one another and encouraging one another and walking in the light. And we have seen men go out of great sexual addiction and walking into sexual wholeness. These men, many of these men are experiencing sexual wholeness where there was great addiction. Listen, men, many, many of you are struggling and battling with issues. Women too. But because we have this group, I want to encourage you, if you have any interest in being in a group like that, and you're ready to get serious about your issue and walk in the light, just email us at info at newvalleychurch.org and I will get you connected to that group or come talk to me or pastor or one of the elders, please. In the church, we often imply that marriage and family is the only way to experience joyful intimacy. But that isn't so. It is the only relationship where sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed but there are other profound forms of relationship, friendship, brotherhood, sisterhood. Jesus was single. You know that, right? And yet he is the ultimate example of what it means to be a human being. And so sex, as wonderful and beautiful as a gift it is, it is not the only way to experience the good life or a whole life or a life of joy. The Apostle Paul commended marriage, but he lifted up singleness as a greater calling. We don't often speak about that in the church, but it's true. A calling. He also, he was probably widowed or unmarried. Most Pharisees uh, were married at, at one point. And so while singleness and celibacy can be a cross to bear, and it is a cross to bear, the people bearing it should not bear it alone. And the church is the place where all single people, including people who are same-sex attracted, should find encouragement and or gender confused. They should find encouragement, love, friendship, and a community as they seek to follow Jesus. You with me? Church, you with me? Yeah, you should be screaming amen to that because where can people go if they want to follow Jesus and yet they have serious issues like this? Where can they go if they can't go to the church? Where can they go if they can't go to, the, to Jesus? Where can they go if they can't be in a community that says, I will help you bear this burden and walk with you? The last thing is this, because all have sinned, Jesus is the answer for all. And so this isn't about who is a good person and who is a bad person because Jesus has basically told us, at least regarding sexuality, there are no good people. This isn't about who's a good person, who's a bad person. Many people have concluded that Christians believe that being a homosexual or being trans will send you to hell. I have it on good authority. You aren't saved because you're a heterosexual. Did you know that? And you aren't necessarily lost because you're gay or non-binary. All of humanity has the exact same problem. You need Jesus. And you're, you're in a state where you need to be reconciled to God. And he's the means by which reconciliation comes. And so, because we, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is it broken? Is it sinful? Yes, but so is envy. So is greed. So is, so is wrath. So is foolishness. <laughs> we need, we need a Hunter to spell out what that means because I think there's some foolishness at times around here. That, that was meant to be a joke. <laughs> you aren't saved because you're a heterosexual. You aren't necessarily lost because you're gay or non-binary. You need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. 
We need his salvation. We need his grace. We need his mercy and kindness. You don't become a Christian by cleaning up your life. You become a Christian by admitting that you could never clean up your life. It would never be enough, but Jesus is enough. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. We have his righteousness by faith. And because everyone needs Jesus, in a way, we should relate to all people kind of the same way. Hey, you need Jesus. <laughs> if you have a neighbor that's a fellow Christian, here's how you should relate to them, including my neighbors that live right across the street. They should relate to me. Scott, you need Jesus. And I'd say, shut up, you weirdo, I'm your pastor. And they'd say, no, but you still need Jesus. And I would say, you know what, you're right. You need Jesus. <laughs> And so if you had a, a, a neighbor that is not a Christian, you would relate to them not as like an especially sinful person. You relate to them as like, you're a person who also needs Jesus. And so whether you have heterosexual neighbors or non-heterosexual neighbors or people who are questioning their gender or whatever their issue is, they're, who, who are they? They're people who what? Hey, they need Jesus. And you know what? That has freed me so much because I used to place people in different categories. Like some people need Jesus and some people need my condemnation and they need me to tell them that they're condemned. And then I started wondering, well, why don't I just tell everyone that? Because that's true of everyone without Jesus. And I don't do that. So instead, what I feel like the Lord has called me to do, and it's been so freeing and so wonderful and it actually has opened up doors for me to share my faith, is to love people so well, right where they are, that I have earned at times an opportunity to share the hope of the gospel that is in me. Some people call it friendship evangelism. How about we just call it friendship? Like if you're, if you're at a stadium and someone says, is that seat saved? And you say, no, but I am. It's like, you don't, you don't have to like, you don't have to like work, work it like that, right? You can, you can just get to know people, love on people. And then, and then God does a remarkable thing when you're not just using people so that you can evangelize them or, or tell them how wrong they are. God has a way, and my wife is a rock star at this, of loving people, just loving them, loving them, and, and not denying that she's a Christian. She works her faith into nearly every conversation. But it's amazing how much, so much love and grace and mercy towards people can make people go, what do you have that I don't have? And then you say, well, I need Jesus. Can I share about how good Jesus is? Friendship is the key to relationship in the church. It's, key, it's the key to relating to people who don't share our faith. Is there a truth about human sexuality and gender? There is. It is also true that none of us are without sin in that area, so we can drop our stones of judgment and walk. Instead, we look to Jesus by faith, we follow him, we seek to live the life he is calling us to as the children of God, taking up our cross and following him and helping one another carry the load if it's burdensome. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for our hypocrisy? Would you forgive us for all the ways that we've condemned other people? Would you forgive us for not loving people well enough inside the church and outside of the church? Would you help us cling to what is gracious and what is true and to not give up on either of those? Would you help us to represent you, Jesus, well? You are grace and truth. Help us 
Help us to show you as the light of the world to those we love. In Jesus' good name, amen.